right after the LOI is accepted and you're going through that due diligence period, that's that's when you're on a timeline. The clock is ticking. So you need to make sure that your team has like quotes ready to go. Uh, there's a physical inspection period. There's a 100% unit site walk that we have to go through. There's the lawyer that's drafting the purchase and sale agreement. There's a business plan you have to draft for the property about changing the name, the entities. There's um, inspectors that you have to communicate with in order to provide feedback to your underwriters. There's like so many parts to it. But if you want to break it down clearly, the minute that you guys have uh, assigned uh, LOI and then you guys are starting to draft the purchase and sale agreement, your team should have quotes ready to go. So you need someone on your team to obtain quotes for an inspection that will usually include uh, these are third-party inspectors. They're, they would include like a property condition report, a phase one environmental seismic um, is dependent on whether it's in a California or earthquake prone state, termites, bed bug inspection. There's also a general contractor that you can engage to come to the property and a roof inspector. And you just need to make sure that you coordinate all these people to show up when there's a hundred percent site walk that's potentially happening uh, that you're going to be doing with the current management company and possibly a replacement management company, but they need to be incognito. <laughs> so whenever you have all these people coming to the site, you want to make sure that the physical inspection is stated in the LOI. Like you need to make sure that it says it's 30 to 45 days upon the execution of the purchase and sale agreement for the purchaser we can we have the completion of all these physical inspections and the 100% unit site walk that would include your trusted management company to come out to the site do the inspections of the units all units including the roof the systems common areas offices and they also need to do like a lease audit and um, that's also the point where you're going to start rallying other people on your team, like your lawyer, who's going to be drafting the uh, PSA. They have to, your legal team could probably do what's called, um, you know, entity formation, because whenever you're buying a property, you're going to have it be in a new entity. So the property itself is going to be in a new entity, along with the management of the money, which will be another entity, and also um, a separate entity would be what's the investor entity. So the legal aspects of it that go into it <laughs> are intricate. There's also reports that might be engaged such as a new uh, survey for the property. There's also title reports that have to be updated to make sure there's no liens and encumbrances on the property. And um, there's just a couple of more components that go into it. Okay, welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we are doing another deep dive series with Andrea Garcia. Andrea, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazingly. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to share the wealth and knowledge of multifamily apartment investing. Oh my God, I'm so excited to have you on here because for the guests that haven't been following us, we've been doing a deep dive series with Andrea about all things multifamily, all things affordable housing. And we actually get really, really deep into details, meaning we talked about how to underwrite. We talked about what are different types of affordable housing, meaning how do you increase rent legally so you don't go to jail. And today we're actually talking about letters of intent, LOIs in other words. But you might have heard of the word LOI, but you don't 
actually know what it means, do you, for some of our listeners out there? Because when you want to write an offer on a property for a multifamily deal, it's not just called an offer, it's called an LOI. But that just seems like a big fancy word for a contract. But what does it actually mean? What do you actually put in there? That's why we have Andrea on the call today on the show to bring you guys so, so much value. So before we get into the show, don't forget to follow at Andrea Garcia REI on Instagram. But Andrea, welcome to the show. Are you excited to talk about LOIs? I'm excited to just impart some knowledge on people because, you know, passive income is something that we have a responsibility to provide for ourselves and our future families. And it can be done through apartment investing. It can be done through just real estate investing in general. We have an opportunity to be able to create value for the lives of so many people, not just for us, but for creating affordable housing and livable housing for a lot of people out there. And we can do this through just sending that initial LOI. So I'm excited to go into this episode with you. All right, let's do it. Cause I'm really, really pumped about it because when I hear the word contracts or I hear the word LOI, I'm like, okay, I, I, I get what it is, but I don't really know what's included in an LOI. So maybe let's just break it down for the listener today, just in terms of like what the categories or different parts of an LOI are before we even go into the teasers. Can you just share what at high level, what those parts of the key contract might be? Yeah, absolutely. I can give you some bullet points. So what is an LOI? An LOI is a letter of intent. It's essentially like an engagement ring. As a few people have described it, you know, you're showing your commitment to doing business together, but it's non-binding. So it's an initial way for us to get the conversation started so that we can have that intent to ultimately purchase or lease a property, which is a marriage. And so with the LOI, I'll give you a few bullet points on this, but an LOI can be drafted in about 20 minutes or less. It can be written without a lawyer. So it's non-binding. Um, and it is basically an outline of how a PSA, a purchase and sale agreement or offer will go, which is binding ultimately in the long run and will be drafted by council. And it should have seven main components to it. So um, the seven main components of an LOI, I wanna just break it down for your listeners, is that it should include number one, your team's bio and contact info. It should have the purchase price. So how much am I willing to pay, which can be negotiated later. It will be also including number three, the terms. The four is the closing date. Five would be the financing and any contingencies, if any. Number six would be the deposit and then seven due diligence. And especially if you want to work with affordable housing and put in an offer for Section 8, it would include a few other factors, such as it would include a short bio for the management company that you currently work with that specializes in Section 8 or tax credit. And then it should also include a section in the LOI, which we're where we request HUD approvals. So where this is a section that usually says it's the contingency of purchasing this property is based upon us receiving HUD approvals, which is affordable housing approvals, such as the terms and conditions acceptable by the purchaser. Usually with section eight as well, we will have longer closing periods because there's more, um, there would be about a 60 day period for where the, expiration of the contingency expires. There would also be a little bit of a longer due diligence period because we're accepting that this is a section eight property and the books and records need to be submitted within a certain period of time. So usually books and records would be required within five to seven days. So just to recap, this is 
an LOI is non-binding, but we need to make sure that it's it shows as an outline to a purchase and sale agreement. So maybe before we get into each part, you said LOIs are not binding. Just give us like a realistic perspective, like how often do the terms change around after you submit an LOI? Because I think you and I know some people are even scared to submit an LOI, right? Like, because they're like, hey, it's like, oh, I don't really do this. What if what if the whole world goes to crap, right? Well, tell us a little bit more about how binding the LOI is and in your experience, how much fluctuation or changes actually happen from that point onwards with the seller. You know, the main reason why people are afraid to submit an LOI is because of the deposit that's due. So, you know, a deposit is a deposit. We might be submitting 1% of the purchase price up to 10%, but that deposit is refundable as long as it's provided um, that we finish the due diligence period and it's before the due diligence period expires. So that's the main reason why people are afraid is because they're afraid of losing their money, right? And they're like, I don't know what to do. So with an LOI, I want people to understand that it is essentially your way of starting the conversation with someone to say, I want to commit to you. I want to buy this property. And as long as we submit LOIs that make sense that you've run through with your underwriting team and done have done an initial napkin or 10 minute underwrite, if you can be able to produce an LOI based on the underwriting and it makes sense for your team, then you should be putting out LOIs as much as you can, but you have to do this with a team. I don't expect anybody to do this entire process by themselves. We, we're It's a community effort, really, <laughs> especially when it comes to the due diligence phase after the LOI is signed and accepted. So um, it's just the way of getting the conversation going, making sure you let them know, I have, these are my intentions for your property. And, you know, if we get rejected, oh, well, it's just like dating, you know, it's, it, it's part of life. I, I love that, that you just made the analogy to dating, because I, I think you just got to give it a shot. If you never ask a girl out, how would you ever know? Right. So you never know. I, I, Take a risk. <laughs> well, I love that you at the first topic you had in your LOI section was actually the team and some of what some of the items about the bio, which to me, when I first thought of it, I was like, hey, when I submit an offer, it's always about, hey, what is the purchase price? That's kind of like upfront. But you actually talk about the team. Tell us, oh, yeah. tell the listeners why, why do you start with the team? Why is that important? So the LOI is so important in the LOI. We, it's very important for us to show the team's background or just the team's experience. So if you don't have any experience and you're a newbie and you want to submit an LOI, I highly recommend that you find a key partner in your deal. Somebody who has already done a deal, somebody who has some real estate experience or background and can be able to show what your intention is for the property, because at the end of the day, the first thing you need to be able to show on an LOI is your team's bio and background, because you're trying to sell yourself. Like you're presenting yourself as like a first date to the seller, you know? So you want to be able to present your best foot forward and say, Hey, this is our experience or background. This is how many um, assets we have under management, maybe how many units we have by state. This is our website. This is our email. You know, you want to be able to make sure that you are reachable and that you are visible. And that those are really, really great points because some people underestimate the power of experience because what 
what's both sides really mo most worried about, right? They're thinking about, is this deal going to close? That's what the broker is thinking. That's what the seller is thinking. Because if you don't close, you still continue incurring all these expenses and you might have just wasted a bunch of time. So I love that you mentioned key partner. Can you, I've heard of the terms key partner and a sponsor. Can you just define that for the listeners really quick about what those terms actually mean? Sure. I mean, the person that's going to be in your bio, you can have them as your key partner, but ultimately sometimes your key partner is usually just uh, their a participant as a general partner in your deal. So they are bringing the majority of the money to show that they their net worth is equal to the loan amount of the property that you're acquiring. So if you're going to be able to purchase a property, you need to make sure that the loan amount is equal to their net worth. Um, but if you don't have somebody like that on your team and you just have, let's say, investors who want to invest with you as a limited partner, then at least find someone who's knowledgeable, has done the sweat equity and can be able to show that they do have some units, asset, you know, assets under management or they have some background in real estate. So um, key partners are very different versus what you know, can you can show as your actual team that's presenting this deal. So the key partners, they are essential. You will need them ultimately when you're signing on a loan for the property, but you don't need to list their experience, their background. They could be a silent partner and just bring the money, you know, and, the, and they bring their REO schedule when it comes time to signing on the loan. Well, thank you for explaining that. I'm sorry I lagged out a little bit really there <laughs> quickly there. Um, but next up, I think you mentioned the second part of the LI are terms, right? What would did I catch that correctly? I think, uh, yeah, you could do terms. We could discuss terms. I would say purchase price would be the next thing you discuss because ultimately yes. people Let's know what background and number two, how much you're going to give me. What are you? When am I willing to pay? Which usually that's why I want people to understand that the LOI is just the start of the conversation and the price. Really, I mean, you can list the asking price if you really are that bold and the deal will make sense at full asking price, then go for it. Just offer the full asking price. But I just want you to know the LOI is non-binding. So you, it can be negotiated later. This price, because of what you're going to undergo with the due diligence period and inspections, it can be completely negotiated later. So the purchase price, it could be what they're asking for, or you could also list a lower price or a negotiated price or, um, you know, your own, your own price that you want to list. That's interesting because sometimes I, I mean, for single family homes, you see people offer list price, right? But then they try to get on creative terms. What have you seen is more effective? Like, do you automatically get the attention of the seller by offering the list price and giving them the price that they have in your experience or, I don't know. Or are you trying to be more realistic so that you don't upset the seller because you just submitted the list price just to submit the list price just to move the conversation. But in reality, maybe your true, true offer in quotes was well under that price. What has been your experience on what has been the most effective? I mean, it depends. Just like any answer in multifamily real estate, it depends on when it comes to the purchase price. It, it really comes down to leverage. Like how much leverage do you have and what market am I investing in? So if you want to focus on what's the best price it can offer for this property, obviously, number one, your team has to have a really great underwrite to start. So if it can make sense with the current purchase price they're asking for, then you probably can come in closer to the purchase price and then give maybe a 1% deposit. But 
if it's a very strong happening market, it's increasing in value, the property's neighborhood is increasing in value, you can actually offer a competitive purchase price, maybe a little bit higher. And you could also offer a bigger deposit just to make sure that they know you're serious about this deal. But if you're not quite sure about this deal, you're not afraid to lose out on it, then you can definitely offer a lower purchase price of what your underwriting team came up with, but it more than likely will be rejected if it's too low. Yeah, that's uh, something to keep in mind. <laughs> well, I love that, you know, you just point out there's so many levers too on the terms, right? It's not just about the purchase price, it's about how big the deposit is so you can actually get the attention of the seller to demonstrate how serious you are about the offer. Um, let's get into the terms. What else do you actually play around with or use as levers to get a seller to take your offer more seriously or just to make the offer more enticing in either side of, of the equation, whether it's for the benefit of the seller or for the buyer? Um, for the terms, they will be stipulated in the LOI. So the terms, if it's a market rate property, it could usually include um, such as physical inspection terms. So you could put the physical inspection will occur 45 days, you know, after the PSA is signed and we need to make sure that we can be able to close on this. It can include what are the terms in, um, in terms of payment, you know, like I will pay you this price upon a certain period of time at this interest rate if it's seller financing. But if it's with a lender, you also have to let them know that you're going to be able to obtain your own um, financing approvals, but there could be no contingencies. So the terms is basically like you're sectioning off in the LOI, the terms of which how you will purchase this property. So it's like them trying to meet you halfway, you know, like, hey, I'm offering for you to marry me, but I need to make sure that <laughs> that you can deliver on your promise to me. Can you show up on time? Can you deliver these documents on time? Can you not, you know, cheat on me by not signing with another um, another buyer? You know, can you not? So you're basically listing out all these ways in which you need to both arrive at an agreement. So it will include requests for financial statements, um, any man, you know, management, vendor, service equipment leasing. It will request items like architectural drawings, certifications and access to files, like operating agreements, any documents like or, a former or existing financing on the property. What are the wages? Um, and salaries of people on the team. So you're basically listing out all the things you're going to request from them. And then like, there's, it also depends if it's section eight properties with section eight, there will be uh, terms in which you're going to work out certain financing with these, with the seller. So it's financing. And also you're going to request um, HAP approvals, which is housing assistance payment approvals. So you're, purchase of the property will be contingent upon the approvals of transfer from one owner to the next. It, you know, it has to be done right when, you know, closing is about to happen. That's interesting. I didn't know that you had to get the approval um, from the government as well when you're buying a HAP contract property. What do they typically ask for when you are purchasing the property? Are they looking for qualifications as well? Like your intent with the property? Can you give us a little bit of details there? So I think with HUD approvals, usually the purchaser uh, receiving HUD approvals, it, um, 
let me clarify this. So whenever we do request HUD approvals in an LOI, uh, it's the transaction is usually contingent upon the purchaser receiving the HUD approval on terms and conditions acceptable to the purchaser. So if I'm the purchaser, I will use its benefits to submit to HUD and request um, housing assistance payment assignment. And I will request for what's usually called a 2530 approval, which is a change in ownership. And it's a proposed new owner and management company, which usually is what's included in HUD approvals because HUD needs to know who is going to be managing this business, who's going to be owning this business. An apartment is a business. So HUD needs to be aware that these HUD approvals um, can be deliverable within usually about 30 days from the execution of the PSA. So if the seller will cooperate with the purchaser to supply this in a timely manner, like the materials and information can be required as a condition to the issuance of the HUD approvals. So the seller will usually also cooperate with um, the rescinding request to opt out of the current contract associated with the property. So just to make it really clear, HUD does require um, an approval for, for a transfer of ownership from and management company for Section 8 properties. Wow, that sounds... Uh... That sounds complex, but I'm glad we have you on the show walking us through that process. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, thank you for walking through all those different terms. I mean, then we talked about different terms. We talked about the purchase price. How about the closing date or the closing period? Do those terms even mean the same thing? I want to make sure I'm speaking to the terminology correctly here. Yeah, I mean, the closing date, you want to be ultimately, ultimately get into this engagement with somebody and tell them, hey... I plan to buy the property and this is when I intend to close on it. So when it's a market rate property, usually, you know, closing can happen within, let's say 30, 60 days, depending on how many reports you have, what inspections you can do. But with affordable housing properties, the closing date effective upon the site, the signature of the purchase and sale agreement can usually take between over 45 days. I would say night closer to 90 days or, or more uh, just because whenever you're going to go through that process of purchasing a section eight property, there's so many um, intricacies involved. Once you do get the LOI signed, such as the due diligence period, physical inspections, third party reports, there's um, approvals for new entities. There's just so much that's involved once you do have that LOI signed. So that's why the closing date, uh, is very critical to this deal. But when you want to look more professional to a seller, it's best to provide a shorter closing date because that way they, they know they have assurances that you can close. So just to recap with the closing date, if it's market rate, it can be shorter, maybe 60 days. But if it's an affordable housing property, it's usually going to be over 90 days or over for a closing date upon the wow. signature of the purchase sale agreement. So thank you for pointing out that difference. I mean, 90 days is, you know, a good, a good term, like a good amount of days over the, the 30 to 60 day uh, typical timing for a market rent property. And I'm assuming this must have to do with like the contingencies that you have to kind of go through. You just talk about a third party inspection report. So what type of contingency do you typically see in a market rent um, LOI versus a Section 8 LOI? 
financing contingencies, you know, technically, let's just describe, let's rewind. So a financing contingency is essentially us saying, if we don't get the financing, if we don't have the money in time for the closing period, then it's con the, the closing is contingent upon us having the money. So usually when you want to look more professional or you have someone on your team that could be able to actually close on this deal and you, you guys have no worries about that, usually what we put on the LOI is no financing contingencies because the property is not contingent. The closing of the property and transfer of ownership is not contingent upon us getting financing to close this. But we always have a clause in the LOI that states more than likely um, we will obtain third party financing for this deal, but closing is not contingent upon that. And then that could apply to both market rate and Section 8 properties. And then there's other contingencies that could be included, especially when it comes to Section 8 properties. I, I want to I should have prefaced this whole conversation by stating I am not a lawyer. I'm not giving legal advice. This is just an informative podcast, but yes. any, I want to be able to stress this. If you guys are worried about contingencies in an LOI, then you can discuss this with an attorney who will ultimately draft your purchase and sale agreement. But the contingencies for um, getting an LOI mutually approved, then you can include items like financing, document receipts. So, you know, you, you have to receive the books by a certain period of time. There's contingencies on um, management companies too. If you want to keep the existing management company or remove them, that could also be a contingency. There could be so many types of contingencies, but the seller would have to ultimately agree to the contingencies or removing them if you want to go forward with purchasing the property. And I think that's so important to kind of, like, I love that you preface that. You have to understand you're going to have attorneys drafting these very intensive like purchase and sales agreements. LOI is there just to kind of get the conversation started, but it ultimately comes down to you and your team working through your attorneys and actually drafting all these different contingencies. Because with the LOI, you might go back and forth to the seller and they'd be like, hey, no, that's a, that's a non-starter for us, right? They might say something like that for that contingency. So it's important to have that conversation and just help people understand why you would be putting that contingency in place. And given Andre, your experience of like, hey, there's going to be X amount of reports that we have to do. We have to interview the management company to make sure they're qualified, right? All these different things we have to ask and make sure before we even proceed with a transaction. So right. we talked about the contingencies, but there must be a big part about the due diligence period and all the different stuff. Like, do you actually have to disclose like all the different stuff that you are doing due diligence on specifically like what does that look like on an LOI um I was actually looking at our latest LOI and whenever we're about to just we're going to disclose to our any seller the type of due diligence that we do we usually list that on the LOI and that's a section where we call uh books and records and reports so that's usually something that we receive you know, it has to be received between five to seven days. And then the actual due diligence, we don't list everything we do on the LOI, but we do list that we there will be a, a period of time where we do require like a physical inspection. And that physical inspection usually will take place um, usually within 30 to 45 days 
upon signing the PSA and we list, we let them know this is that we're going to do a physical inspection. There's also financing approvals. There's um, like closing costs. So, you know, the seller shall pay, let's say hundred percent of all state, county, city uh, transfer taxes that are payable in connection to the transfer of the property. So you could list that. Um, but if you want to discuss the due diligence period, we can chat about that next because that's an entirely different <laughs> part of what happens. So once you hit the ground running and you've signed a an LOI and it's been approved, there's like a whole other process that goes with that. And, and we, we could chat about that now if you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely going to go a little bit into that because I think it's very important for them to understand like, hey, it gets accepted right now. What? But let me just make sure I understood the due diligence stuff that we talked about for the LOI. Like, you talked about like environmental studies, like third-party appraisal reports. Is that what you're listing out in the due diligence um, sort of section of the LOI? I want to make sure I, I'm covering that for the listeners so that they know, even if they're newbies, they're like, hey, something like this should be included in my LOI. Well, the LOI, um, if you want to be able to include due diligence, there's not really a section in there that says due diligence. You have due diligence items in there. So you will mm -hmm. LOI items such as a physical inspection period. There's um, books, records, and reports. There's also a period that you will state uh, that you're going to list on their uh, closing. So the closing is usually where we list the amount of days we need for um, the due diligence to be done. So usually with closing dates, we will say it's going to take place through this specific a title company, because whenever you're buying, buying a property, you're not going to send money directly to the seller. You're going to send it to a title company that you trust. And it will happen usually within, let's say, 30 to 60 days upon the expiration of the contingency period. And then the purchaser shall have about, let's say, another 30 days at, to get an extension in case if it's necessary. So usually the due diligence items won't be fully 100% stated. They'll just be um, included as a part of the closing period. So I just want listeners to know, like there is a due diligence phase you go through and that's not usually what we list in the LOI. Thank you for clarifying that because sometimes we just hear all these phrases and we just like combine them into like, oh, contingencies, inspection contingencies, it's part of due diligence. And it's important for us to understand like, hey, how do you actually differentiate some of these items there? So, all right. Right. As it's important for your listeners to know that the, the due diligence period usually is at the end of the physical inspection. So whenever the due diligence period finishes, that's usually when the physical inspection is completed and everything's acceptable and done and signed off. So the inspection period will take maybe 30 to 45 days. And that's usually when the DD period expires and your earnest money goes hard. Like you cannot, if you go past that DD period where the physical inspection is done um, and you, you guys haven't decided what you're going to do, then your, your money is gone. If, if you, you know, it's non-refundable at that point. That's so important. And all right, well, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the due diligence period then because you mentioned like, hey, that could be a whole nother conversation, but maybe we can just do a little teaser for the audience. Like, sure, I'm what happy to else? do another 
section yeah. about due diligence because it's it's quite a long, extensive period, but I can give you some highlights about what happens after the LOI is signed, agreed upon, and due diligence time starts. Let's do it. Tell us about what do you what should they get started on right away after you get your due diligence? I mean your LOI accepted. So yeah, right after the LOI is accepted and you're going through that due diligence period, that's that's when you're on the timeline. The clock is ticking. So you need to make sure that your team has like quotes ready to go. Uh, there's a physical inspection period. There's a 100% unit site walk that we have to go through. There's the lawyer that's drafting the purchase and sale agreement. There's a business plan you have to draft for the property about changing the name, the entities. There's um, inspectors that you have to communicate with in order to provide feedback to your underwriters. There's like so many parts to it. But if you want to break it down clearly, the minute that you guys have uh, assigned uh, LOI and then you guys are starting to draft the purchase and sale agreement, your team should have quotes ready to go. So you need someone on your team to obtain quotes for an inspection that will usually include uh, these are third-party inspectors. They're, they would include like a property condition report, a phase one environmental seismic um, is dependent on whether it's in a California or earthquake prone state, termites, bed bug inspection. There's also a general contractor that you can engage to come to the property and a roof inspector. And you just need to make sure that you coordinate all these people to show up when there's a hundred percent site walk that's potentially happening uh, that you're going to be doing with the current management company and possibly a replacement management company, but they need to be incognito. <laughs> so whenever you have all these people coming to the site, you want to make sure that the physical inspection is stated in the LOI. Like you need to make sure that it says it's 30 to 45 days upon the execution of the purchase and sale agreement for the purchaser we can, we have the completion of all these physical inspections and the hundred percent unit site walk that would include your trusted management company to come out to the site, do the inspections of the units, all units, including the roof, the systems, common areas, offices, and they also need to do like a lease audit. And um, that's also the point where you're going to start rallying other people on your team, like your lawyer, who's going to be drafting the uh, PSA. They have to, your legal team could probably do what's called, um, you know, entity formation, because whenever you're buying a property, you're going to have it be in a new entity. So the property itself is going to be in a new entity, along with the management of the money, which will be another entity. And also um, a separate entity would be what's the investor entity. So the legal aspects of it that go into it are intricate. There's also reports that might be engaged such as a new uh, survey for the property. There's also title reports that have to be updated to make sure there's no liens and encumbrances on the property. And um, there's just a couple of more components that go into it. But I'm happy to discuss this at a later time, but you really do have to have a team to get all of these, you know, little parts moving forward in order to fully commit and get to that finish line, the marriage of you and the property, you know, for you to actually buy this property, the DD period has to give your underwriters a great sense of whether this is a good investment or not, or if it's just, we have to let it go. So sometimes what happens during this due diligence period 
you're going to be paying for these third-party reports and your team might be out $15,000. That's one of the risks you're going to take. Like you're going to take risks on putting an LOI out there. And if you don't fully commit, and if you don't do conservative underwriting, you may be responsible for paying for those third-party reports after the due diligence period expires. They're going to re require payment for all the inspections they conducted. So that's a risk you you're willing to take as long as you can your team can perform conservative underwriting and put yeah. that in the LOI. And man, like that just sounds like so much chaos, but organized chaos. I'm sure that you guys are going through it in that phase because this is right. This is like your last chance on a crunch timeline to mm -hmm. do and sort of dig up the dirt on whatever you don't know about the property, right? You might've made all these assumptions, but yeah, you might've spent 15 grand, but if that saves you a million dollar mistake, like this is the time that you have to spend that money and you have to, I'm sure like you guys talk to your investors all the time this is the risk capital you're putting towards the deal where, Hey, there is a chance of us not recuperating this money, but this is necessary for what we need to do to make sure we truly, truly understand all the investment choices that we're making when we're considering this property. It's almost similar. Like when you buy a stock out there, they have all these financials that they released. That's been audited, right? It's right. giving the information. So you can make an educated information. This is almost the same analogy, except you guys are hiring your own investigators, quote unquote, but they're really just third party um, inspectors. But you're trying to get as much information as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. The LOI is just start of the conversation. And then once that conversation is started and the seller is interested in getting into business with you and selling you the property, then this is when the DD period starts. After, you know, when we get that purchase and sale agreement going, then it's, it's just hitting the ground running. <laughs> so you so need to make sure. You work with your team to have great conservative underwriting in order to provide a good LOI. And if you have that confidence to be able to close on the property, you have the money or your team has the money, then you can provide a competitive price or, or a bigger deposit. But it just depends on how you underwrite the property and if it really is a good deal. Yeah. And I'm sorry, this is so cool because like you are like the master underwriter of your team, right? But how do you stay involved? in this part of the process? Like, where do you have your hands on the pieces? Like, are you are you personally talking to the third party inspectors, like seeing what they kind of come back and what those results are? Like, oh, yeah. may, maybe so I can break it down. Like, hey, who are the people that are involved right now? And like, wh what are they generally responsible for to kind of keep this chaos organized? <laughs> Absolutely. So whenever you're about to uh, go through this entire period of due diligence, the, during the due diligence period and the physical inspection period, we need to ensure that these inspectors are communicating directly with the person who engaged them. And they can communicate any immediate uh, physical or life safety needs or replacements that are major repairs like HVAC roof system. So that will all factor into our underwriting because we usually ask them, hey, how much would it be to uh, read popcorn? <laughs> you know, re cap the ceilings or change the HVAC and they will tell us how much it will be. So we have to factor that into our underwriting. And then we negotiate with the seller and say, Hey, this is what came up in the physical inspection. We need to talk about the price. We need you to work with us on this price. And if not, we're backing out. So you can't be afraid to go into this engagement with a chance of getting rejected, but you're at least listing what your team is comfortable with and how you can move forward on the price. 
And I think that's so important because you guys are now using an objective third party to have these conversations with the sellers so that it's truly professional, right? It's not like you're trying to nickel and dine them on every single thing. You actually have some sort of basis of support to have that conversation with the seller, right? Um, right. So I think that's what makes those conversations a little bit more fruitful because you're doing all these due diligence items uh, during yes. this time period. Okay. Yeah, and you need to be able to make sure that I think that one key component about the LOI is that it should include language that states it is non-binding. There's a few people out there that have listed language, but it basically says like, this concludes a summary of the basic terms and conditions, which were interested in moving forward on the property, but they want, you want to understand that this property, the, the LOI that we're submitting for the property is non-binding. So there should be some language in your LOI that reminds them, this is not a PSA, this is not an offer, this is an LOI. You know, this is our intent, it is non-binding. So it can be negotiable later, such as the price and the terms. It's just the start of the conversation. Well, thanks for like walking us through that because I can see how chaotic it can be whenever people just like giving you back like, hey, here's the quote we got back for HVAC, here's what we got back for the renovation. Then you're just trying to update your numbers all at the same time, right? Um, that sounds crazy. Do you recommend being under contract with more than one property at the same time like this seems like a big no-no but i don't know have you gone through any situations like that uh i have it is definitely chaos especially when it comes <laughs> to <laughs> properties that are over 100 units which is usually what i've seen um what, what i deal with it's chaos and controlled chaos but I, you know i'm able to handle and manage it effectively and fine as long as we have systems in place and we know what we're going through but I think I, I think the most properties I've been under contract with was like three at a time. And wow. those were all over a hundred units. And uh, wow. the, the due diligence periods, all those. But I've also been under contract with refinancing these properties. So whenever we're doing a refinance, ooh, we've been under maybe 10 refinances at a time. Those also include uh, the third party reports that I mentioned before, but not an LOI. So the LOI might be something you send to the lender to say, hey, you know, we need terms. We, we need to re renegotiate at this price and give us a different interest rate. And that's an LOI for the lender. But when you want to put in an LOI for a seller, that's a different process. Wow. All right. That we might have to do another deep dive series on that part and about how you work with all these lenders, because that seems like a very intricate relationship <laughs> or just there's a lot of moving parts in that piece, but Andrea, yeah. anything else you want to share with the audience about LOI, any sort of like gotcha moments in your experience that you've experienced, like what else should newbie investors really kind of look out for when it comes to LOIs? I think one of the biggest reminders for people and the biggest tips I can give anybody is to just start working on your skills of understanding the verbiage of an LOI and also finding a team that can help you so that you guys can do underwriting, broker outreach. You can figure out there's deals on the market that you can put in offers for and just keep that conversation going because the more LOIs you put out there, the more possibility that you can have to close on these deals, to be able to close on, uh, let's say my goal is 200 units by the end of this year, another 200 units. I already have about 1,700 under my portfolio as a small managing member equity partner, but I want to acquire more to be able to help family and friends and, you know, others be able to find this type of 
uh, investing strategy for themselves. So the more LOIs you put out there, more chances you have of being able to get a property under contract, get the process going, get your first deal. I think it's like really exciting, but just don't overthink it. You know, there's templates online, there's tons of courses out there, uh, but it's just knowing, you know, those main points that I was discussing earlier, which is it has to include your team's bio. Number one, you have to sell yourself for sure. It has to include mm. the purchase price, the terms, the closing date, financing contingencies, if any, deposit and due diligence. All that needs to be included in your LOI. And then if you're focusing on section eight, maybe a little bit more intricacies, but just don't make it, don't overcomplicate it. If you need to work with an attorney, go for it, but it shouldn't be that complicated. I love it. You just made it sound so less daunting. Um, and that makes me feel like really good about getting into the space because I think it's so helpful for people to know that there are individuals like yourself, Andre, who are so giving, who is willing to come on the podcast like these and share this information with the world. I think this is so cool. And I cannot thank you enough again for your time and your dedication towards the space. So Andrea, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find out a little bit more about you? They can reach out to me, reaching out to me on Instagram, Andrea Garcia, R-E-I. And I'm also on Facebook. Um, but yeah, there's, I have a website too. People can go as well. And there's, I feel like people just need to start the conversation with themselves and seeing how they want to live in the next couple of years and how real estate can help them get there. Because investing in affordable housing, especially in apartments, has changed my life forever. And I'm just grateful to meet people like you be on this podcast, help others learn when I never learned in the beginning. So thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm so excited. All right. I can't wait to have you come back on as the guest co-host as we get more uh, amazing all-stars in the affordable housing space to come on and share uh, this amazing knowledge with our listeners. So thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you.